be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. 
and bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Presidential speech writer Robert Orban once said, Sometimes I get the feeling the whole world is against me. But deep down I know that's not true. Some smaller countries are neutral. Well, he jokes, but I think we've probably all felt that way at one time or another. You you have a bad day, a bad week, a month, even a year. Things just seem to go wrong all the time. You're at odds with your boss or your co-workers. There's things around the house that need repaired. The car breaks down. Your kid needs new shoes. You just hurt yourself getting out of bed in the morning. The dog makes a mess in the house. It's Sunday morning. You have a fight with your spouse, and then you have to show up and pretend to smile for two hours. At some point, you either start to cry or you lash out in anger. It just feels like everything that could possibly go wrong has. The whole world is against you. Even God is against you. That's what Jacob and his sons experience here in Genesis 42. Things just keep going wrong, one thing after the next. Just when they think it couldn't possibly get any worse, it does. So what are we to think in those moments? Well, we know from the New Testament that in Him, that is in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. We know that God works all things according to his will, even the hard things. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And so we know that God not only works all things, but he's working them together for good according to his purposes. What does that look like? How does that work when it seems as if everything is going wrong? When it feels as if even the small countries are no longer neutral, the whole world is against you. Well, I think we have an example of that here in Genesis 42. Charles Spurgeon once said, We can always see a thing better through a picture than anyhow else. If you tell a man a simple truth, he does not see it nearly so well as if you told it to him in an illustration. I believe the Old Testament history has for one of its designs the furnishing of the Christian with illustrations 
so that a truth which we find in the New Testament in its naked form is taught as a doctrine we find in the Old Testament cast into a parable. And so we would use this most excellent ancient book, the Old Testament, as an illustration of the new and as a means of explaining to our minds the truth that is taught us in a more doctrinal form in the New Testament. So that's my aim this morning with this text is to, by it, illustrate the truth of Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 1.11. That even when it appears that the whole world is against you, that everything is working against you, that even in those moments you can trust God because he is working all things together for good according to his purposes. So I want to look at the events of this chapter from four different perspectives. First, from the perspective of Jacob's or Joseph's brothers and how they perceived things to be happening. And then from Jacob's perspective and what he thought. And then from Joseph's point of view and what he was doing in that moment. And then finally, we'll look at what God was actually doing. So we'll begin with Joseph's brothers and how they viewed the events of these few short months in their lives. It it was a journey from Canaan to Egypt, probably took them a while. There's caravans on the road. There's several weeks uh, or a month even on the road making this journey, and then they're there for a while, and then they have to journey home. And, And so there's this period of time that lasts a couple of months in which these events occur. And if you'll remember from the previous two chapters in which Joseph interpreted dreams, first for Pharaoh's officers and then for Pharaoh himself, we, we discussed in those chapters the subject of discernment. In chapter 41, we, we looked at the idea of discerning good and evil. Well, the brothers' basic problem is they lack that kind of discernment. They're caught up in events they don't understand. They, they lack the discernment and the perspective to properly interpret those events. Now, the chapter opens sometime during the course of this seven-year famine, presumably near the end of year one. The famine has been so severe that Jacob is looking for some place to buy grain for his household. Now, if you'll remember, Joseph was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery. He was 30 when he was brought out of prison to stand before Pharaoh. So 13 years have passed in that time. Then seven years of plenty had come and gone, and now the years of famine have begun. So it's been 20, 21 years since the brothers last saw Joseph. By this time, Benjamin is a young man in his mid-twenties. Joseph is 38, and his brothers are older than that. For 20 years, they have lived with the knowledge that they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt, and they let their father believe that he was dead. From what they say in this chapter, it's clear that they've spoken of Joseph as dead for so long that they've come to believe it to be true themselves. And it seems the family was not prepared for this famine. It's only about one year into the famine at this point. And we know that because when they come back the second time to buy grain and Joseph reveals himself to them, he tells them there are five more years of famine yet to come. So that second trip is the two-year mark into the famine. So this is likely somewhere around the end of the first year. Jacob hears that there is grain to be purchased in Egypt, but his sons are just standing around kind of looking sideways at each other. And so he asks them why in verse 1, why do you look at one another? 
Well, they're looking at each other like that because Egypt is a place of dread in their minds. It's where they sent their brother to his death as a slave. It's the scene of the crime, so to speak. It's probably the last place on earth that they want to go. Not that they have any expectation of meeting their brother there. They believe him to be dead, which is probably not unlikely for a slave. But it's one place they don't want to go because it reminds them of what they did. It reminds them of their sin. So for them, this is a bad start to these events. At the insistence of their father and knowing that they have no other option, they pick up and they go to Egypt. Now, Benjamin stays home with Jacob, but the other 10 brothers go. And they go themselves. They don't send servants. They, they go themselves to buy this grain. They arrive in Egypt and, and find out that they have to get approval from this governor in order to buy the food they need. And so they meet with him, not knowing that it's their brother, Joseph. Joseph knew them, but he doesn't reveal himself. Instead, he speaks roughly to them. He starts questioning them, speaking through an interpreter, and he accuses them of being spies. So they have to go to Egypt where they don't want to be because there's a famine that's endangering the lives of their households. And now the governor of Egypt is falsely accusing them of being spies. And so they try to convince him that they're not. Verse 10, and they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We're honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So here they are in Egypt being falsely accused of being enemies. And in their efforts to convince him of their innocence, they say too much. And they mention their other brothers, the one whom they presume to be dead and the one who is at home safe. In verse 13, and they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. Now, what they did, the, the sin that they committed against their brother Joseph has now come back to their minds. And they still haven't managed to convince this man that they're not spies. They shouldn't have said anything about another brother at home because now this Egyptian governor who holds their lives and the lives of their family in his hand is refusing to sell them grain unless Benjamin comes down to Egypt to prove that they aren't lying. And I imagine that they have a pretty good idea of how their father is going to react to that idea. So they've said too much, and now they're in a real pickle. This Egyptian official then says he's going to put them in prison and let just one of them return home to get Benjamin. In fact, he says, send one of you and let him bring your brothers and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there's any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Can you put yourself in their place? Can you imagine what they must be thinking? What, what must be going through their minds at this moment? What if you're the one brother that has to go home and tell your dad, that his nine other sons are in an Egyptian prison, that the governor of the land thinks they're spies, and the only way to prove they're not is to take his youngest son, his beloved son, down to Egypt. And who knows what this crazy Egyptian might do? He's unreasonable. 
Why, why does he think they're spies? He has no cause to think that. Benjamin's life could be in danger if they take him down to Egypt. This guy is suspicious and, and harsh with them. None of them want to be that one who returns to Jacob with this news. But I'm sure none of them wants to stay in prison in Egypt either. The situation just keeps getting worse for them. But after three days, the governor changes his mind and decides he's only going to keep one brother in prison. Now they have to decide which brother is going to stay in prison and who's going to go home. And again, no one wants to stay in prison. So they talk amongst themselves, not knowing that Joseph can understand them. And in verse 21, their, their conversation becomes a sort of confession of their guilt. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon them, has come upon us. This isn't attributed to one brother in particular. It's, it's uh, all of them. This is kind of the summary of their conversation. They admit to one another that they're guilty, and we get some new insight into that moment of betrayal. 17-year-old Joseph had pleaded with them with anguish when they were selling him as a slave. They saw it in his eyes. They heard it in his voice as he begged them not to do this evil. And they've lived with that for 20 years. Then Reuben, the oldest, speaks up and he sort of rebukes the others. Reuben answered them saying, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. If you'll remember, Reuben did speak up at the time and told them not to, to kill uh, Joseph. And then he seems to have been gone when they sold Joseph into slavery. And notice the language that you, Reuben uses here at the end of the verse. It's the language of the Noahic covenant from chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For he is the image, for in the image of God, he made man. So Reuben is saying judgment has come upon us. They, they sold their brother into slavery and they believe death. And now God is holding them accountable under the terms of the Noahic covenant. The day of reckoning has come. They're getting what they deserve, bitter pill that it is. Now, Joseph heard all this, and, and he understood what they were saying, and it moved him to tears. So he leaves the room, and then he comes back. He just made the decision for them because they've been having this conversation instead of deciding who was going to stay in prison. So Joseph just decides for them. At the end of verse 24, it says, "...and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes." Now, Simeon was the second oldest. Reuben had not been present when Joseph was sold, and he's just rebuked the brothers for what they did. Simeon had a reputation from, for cruelty. Remember, he was intimately involved in the slaughter of Shechem. It's very possible that he was sort of the ringleader in torturing Joseph as a youngster. So when this, to their eyes, foreign governor of Egypt just happens to choose Simeon, the second oldest, the one who is probably the most guilty. I'm sure that kind of got their attention. 
How did he know to pick Simeon? The remaining nine brothers then uh, begin this return trip to Canaan, and they're probably trying to figure out, how are we going to tell Dad? When we get home, what are we going to say? And at some point on the road, one of them opens his sack to feed his donkey, and he finds his money inside, the money that they had paid for the grain. And look at how they respond in verse 28. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Their hearts sank with fear. Why? Well, now this harsh Egyptian is going to think they cheated him somehow, that they stole their money back. This is only going to confirm his suspicions that they're bad actors. And so they cry out, what is this that God has done to us? It's just been one bad turn after another, and, and they've come to the conclusion that God is out to get us. God is against us. He's setting us up for failure here. So they get home and and they relate to Jacob everything that has happened and they find all their money has been returned, which only causes more fear. And then Jacob blames them, not only for the loss of Joseph, but for the loss of Simeon and for the threat against Benjamin. They've had a rough couple of months at this point. And as far as they can see, God has set himself to judge them for their sin. Now, Jacob's perspective is similar, but it's marked distinctly by grief. He's bereaved of two sons, one lost in death at a young age, so he thinks, and the other as good as dead in an Egyptian prison with a threat against his youngest beloved son because the others couldn't keep their mouth shut. The famine continues to be a threat against his whole household. Jacob's just overwhelmed. He just feels like the whole world is against him. And so he laments at the end of verse 36, all these things are against me. And to add insult to injury, his oldest son, Reuben, who who should be a, a, a leader in the family, has an absolutely terrible read on the situation and makes a horrible suggestion in verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Why Reuben thought Jacob would be comforted by killing his own grandsons is beyond me. Now, Calvin suggests that Reuben didn't really mean it, but that it was kind of an extreme gesture that was meant to assure Jacob that the brothers didn't mean any harm to Benjamin because their father kind of is suspecting that maybe they had something to do with Joseph's demise. And I suppose that's possible, but Jacob is not comforted by Reuben's words here. He adamantly refuses to let Benjamin go with them to Egypt. If anything were to happen to his youngest son, Jacob believes the grief would just be more than he could bear. The idea that he would be comforted in that moment by killing two of his own grandsons just lets him know that Reuben is not in his right mind. Jacob later says that Reuben is unstable as water. He seems a little mentally unstable if he thought this suggestion would be comforting. So Jacob ignores the suggestion, refuses to risk Benjamin's life. 
Jacob's entire demeanor here is marked by grief and fear, grief at the evil he believes he has already suffered and fear of what may come, further tragedy. Jacob and his sons all believe that the whole world is against them. Everything's going wrong from their vantage point. But we know that neither Jacob nor his sons have a view to be able to see what is really happening in this moment. They don't have the full picture. Jacob seems lost in self-pity and grief and fear. His sons see the hand of God in it, but they only see his hand of judgment. Now, Joseph has a different perspective on the situation. Joseph recognized his brothers early in the chapter, but he had changed so much they didn't recognize him. The last time they saw him, he was a 17-year-old kid that they had stripped his robe off of him, cast him into a muddy pit, and then sold him as a slave. And what they see before them now is a high-ranking Egyptian official, nearly 40 years old, probably clothed in regal clothing, with servants attending his every command. So they don't recognize him. Joseph doesn't reveal himself to them. He he keeps his identity secret. Why? What's he up to here? Why is he questioning them so severely? Well, he tells them exactly why he's doing this. He's testing them. He says in verse 15, In this manner you shall be tested. Now, Joseph has good reason not to trust these guys. But I, I don't think that he's simply out for revenge at this moment. I think he wants to be reunited with his family, but he needs to know what kind of men are these. What have they changed in the last 20 years? So he tests them, and he tests them in three ways here. In verse 9, it says, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. So he he remembers the dreams, and then he falsely accuses them of being spies. Why does he do that? Well, if you'll remember from chapter 37 when he had his dreams, the reaction his brothers had was one of pride. We're not going to bow down to this young upstart brother of ours. And Joseph remembers that. And here they are bowing before him just as he had dreamed But they don't know they're bowing to him. They think they're bowing to this Egyptian official. So he wants to test them. Are they still proud and arrogant? Or have they learned some humility? How are they going to respond to this false accusation? Will their pride be offended? Or will they be meek and humble? Three times he accuses them of being spies. And each time they respond with an insistence of their innocence. But they do so with humility and not arrogance. Second, Joseph wants to know if they're still cruel and heartless or have they learned some brotherly affection and love. So he tells them to choose who would go home and who would stay in prison. And he puts it to them both ways. One goes, nine stay. But after three days in prison, they've not decided who's going to go. So he changes it and says, one of you will stay and nine will go. He says in verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. And then they have this conversation about their guilt regarding Joseph, and they they don't decide who's going to stay. They're not 
quickly picking out the weakest or the youngest among them and kind of throwing him under the camel train, so to speak. Instead, they're, they're discussing how they're all guilty. They all deserve to be in this prison. The third test is of their honesty. Joseph has discerned that they lied to Jacob about what they did to him. His father believes him to be dead. He doesn't know how honest they're being with him right now. Is Benjamin safe at home? Have they treated him like they treated Joseph? Can they be trusted? So he sends them home with extra grain for the trip, and he has their money returned to their sacks. Now here's a test of honesty. Joseph knows this famine will continue for years. He knows they're going to be back to buy more grain. Will they bring Benjamin with them, safe and sound? What about the money? Will they pretend it never happened, insist, oh, we we paid, and just keep the money, or are they going to be honest about it? Have you ever been in a store and had the cashier give you too much change? Did you return the extra? I saw this happen this week. I was at Max's Donuts a few days ago. Don't judge me. And there was a woman there with her son in line in front of me, and she bought a half a dozen donuts or so, and she paid, and she left. And then a minute later, she came back in, and she insisted to the woman behind the counter that, that she had given her $5 too much change. And the woman said, no, 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 you gave me a 20 I did this. And she said, no, no, you, you gave me $5 too much. No, no, I didn't. I gave you the right change. She said, you, you have to take it. I have to pay for my donuts. And she insisted. It was a great example of integrity for her young son that was with her. That's what Joseph is hoping to see from his brothers. He's got some questions in his mind about these men. Once they find out that the brother that they betrayed and sold as a slave is not only alive, but he's the one who's dispensing food in Egypt, the only place they can go to get grain during this famine... What are they going to do? Will they confess to their father what they did 20 years ago? Or are they going to try and cover up their sin once more? Are they going to deceive Jacob in some way, try and keep him from being reunited with Joseph so that he won't find out what they did? What are they going to do with Benjamin? What if they bring Benjamin down and, and then they don't ever take him back home? Joseph's got a lot of questions, and he needs answers before he trusts himself to these men. At the same time, he's trying to do them some good. He gave them extra food for the journey. He gave them their money back. I mean, think about it. During an extended period of famine, simple economics, supply and demand, tells us that the price of food is going to continue to increase over the coming years. Cash is going to get low. They're going to need that money. So Joseph, by his actions, is really testing his brothers, but he's, he's doing good for them at the same time. But what is God doing in the midst of all of this? Well, the brothers lamented in verse 28, saying, what is this that God has done to us? They thought it was judgment, but it was actually mercy. They thought the whole world was against them, but God was actually working to accomplish good in their lives. And the sheer complexity of the situation makes it impossible to say for sure everything that God was doing. But I want to identify two things that 
I think we can see in this text that he was working to accomplish. First, he was working for their spiritual good. He was bringing them to the point of dealing with their sin, of confessing it aloud, repenting of it. For 20 years, they've kept this sin a secret. The guilt of it has weighed on them, but God forces them to go to Egypt where it would be brought to their minds what they had done. Joseph's harsh treatment, his accusations, the time spent in prison, God brought the guilt of their conscience to bear so that they confessed their sin aloud to one another. There in verse 21, we are truly guilty. This seems to be the first time they've discussed this as a group. Some of them may have spent some sleepless nights thinking about it, I don't know, but now they're confessing their sin with their mouths. To cover a sin and keep it secret, even from ourselves, is not spiritually healthy. It's God's grace to us that He sends the Spirit to convict our conscience of our sin, drive us by the guilt of it to confess aloud our sins. And when we confess, Scriptures assure us that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God used the affliction of the famine, Joseph's testing, to drive his brothers to the point of acknowledging their guilt and confessing their sin to one another. He brought them to to lay aside their pride and realize that they stood condemned before a holy God. The good news of salvation doesn't really mean anything unless you recognize that you need it. God was bringing them to that point where they could acknowledge their sin, recognize their need. God was working out their salvation, spiritually and physically. They couldn't see it. There was grain to be had in Egypt and none in Canaan, so God sent them to Egypt, the one place their consciences wanted to avoid. That didn't happen by accident. God did that for their good, that they would be forced to face their sin and obtain bread to eat. They were tested that Joseph might know their honesty, their integrity, and their brotherly love. Their money was put back into their possession that they might prove their integrity and not be impoverished by the famine. But they saw it as an evil rather than as a good thing. They saw it as something to be feared. It wasn't an oversight. It wasn't an accident or an accounting error. It was God working all things for good but they saw it through a lens of fear. Jacob saw only that everything was going wrong. Everything's conspiring against him to afflict him with grief and loss. I think that's how we usually feel when things are going wrong and piling up on top of one another. That's our natural reaction. Just everything is against me. Instead of seeing the hand of our loving Heavenly Father at work, we just think, The world is against me. John Calvin said of this text, Our own indolence hinders us from perceiving God with the eyes of faith as holding the government of the world. Because we either imagine fortune to be the mistress of events, or else adhering to near and natural causes, I mean, looking at just what's happening right now in the moment and not looking beyond them, 
we weave them together and spread them as a veil before our eyes. Therefore, scarcely any more illustrious representation of divine providence is to be found than in this history. Let pious readers carefully exercise themselves in meditation upon it in order that they may acknowledge those things which, in appearance, are fortuitous to be directed by the hand of God. What he's saying is when things go wrong, instead of just thinking about how wrong they are and dwelling on that, we should stop and consider that nothing happens apart from the providential supervision of God. You get a flat tire, God meant for that to happen. No matter how bad things seem, we should stop and consider it's all happening according to God's sovereign design and for His purpose in the world. It's difficult to see those purposes, especially when we're in the trenches, when you're suffering from some sort of affliction. Jacob and his sons couldn't see it. But we know that God was providing food for their family during a severe famine. He was restoring broken family relationships, preparing them for their time in exile when he would make them into a great nation and then take them out and give the land to their descendants. God was at work. He was doing good things, and they couldn't see it. And there's a clue here to the ultimate work that God was doing. Remember that Joseph isn't the one through whom God will bring the Savior into the world. That will be Judah. Joseph is being used by God to preserve Judah alive so that one day Christ would come into the world. In Genesis 2, God gave Adam prohibition against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it included a warning, a warning that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's Paul's commentary there in Romans 5 on what happened in Genesis 3. Death came to all men because of Adam's sin. And and death means to be cut off. By his sin, Adam was cut off from the fellowship with God he had enjoyed in the garden. He died spiritually. And he began the process of physical decay that would lead to the death of his body. The promise of a Redeemer includes the implicit promise that he would reverse this situation. Paul goes on in Romans 5 verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Adam passed from life to death because of his sin, and in Christ we pass from death to life. Now notice the language of chapter 42 in verse 2. Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Verse 18, then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. And in verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. God was providing bread in Egypt so that they would not die. But more than that, he was sovereignly preserving the life of Judah through whom he had ordained to bring Christ into the world. God was working salvation for all the elect 
to the circumstances that they saw as afflictions. Even when it appears that everything is working against us, we can trust that God is working all things together for good. Jacob thought that he had lost two of his sons. His grief over Joseph was real. And he had suffered that loss for 22 years before he's reunited. But that was only a temporary loss that served to preserve his entire household alive through a severe famine. His sons thought that God was working against them to judge them harshly when in fact he was working to preserve their lives, to show them mercy, bring them to repentance. So when it seems that the whole world is against you, even the small countries, there are three things that we can know with complete certainty. First, we can know that God is sovereign and in control of all things. Things don't work themselves out. God works them out. So we should learn to adore His providence, to cherish His sovereignty, to take comfort in knowing that the one who calls himself our Heavenly Father sees all, knows all, and works all. Nothing happens to you that God did not foreordain. Nothing happens to you that catches God off guard. Nothing is left to chance. Modern man has convinced himself that everything exists by chance. But the scriptures proclaim, The Lord prepared hath his throne, and heavens firm to stand, and everything that being hath his kingdom doth command. Everything by chance? Not a chance. Everything by the command of our sovereign God. Second, we know that in everything, God has a purpose. In the famine, in the grief, in the suffering, even in the sin of Joseph's brothers, God has a purpose. In the circumstances that force us to face our sin, God has a purpose. In the circumstances that force us to go somewhere or do something that we wouldn't otherwise want to do, God has a purpose. In the circumstances that cause us to fear, God has a purpose. In the circumstances that cause us to despair or to grieve, God has a purpose. In the moment we may not be able to discern His purpose, we may never know His purpose in this life. That's okay. We don't need to know. We only have to trust. Trust that in His infinite wisdom, our Heavenly Father has things in hand. And He's working all of them according to His good purposes. And that's the third thing that we can know is that His purposes are good. He's working all things together for good according to His purpose. All things for good. Not just some things. Not just the good things. The good things don't cancel out the bad things or make up for them somehow. No. Even the so-called bad things are worked out according to God's purpose for good. In good times, our hearts can easily become divided. The prophet Hosea addresses that in chapter 10 of his book. We begin to cling to the things of this world. But affliction works together for good when it causes us to cling to Christ 
in desperation and utter dependence upon Him. Affliction works together for good when it shows us the wicked sin that lurks in our own hearts. Affliction works together for good when it conforms us to the image of Christ, who, according to Isaiah, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As the Puritan Thomas Watson put it, was his head crowned with thorns and do we think to be crowned with flowers? It is good to be like Christ, though it be by suffering. Affliction works together for good when it purges our pride and humbles us before God. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Affliction works together for good when it sanctifies us and brings genuine happiness to our souls. For Job says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. Affliction works together for good when it draws other people to glorify God when they see our response to affliction. Peter writes and says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they falsely accuse you, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Affliction works together for good when it prepares us for the glory that we will inherit. For our light affliction is but for a moment and is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The best antidote against despair and hopelessness in the face of everything going wrong is to fix firmly in your mind that even when it seems that everything is going wrong, God is in control, and He is working all things together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purposes. So we must be sure of our calling, of our love for Christ. Do you love Him? Do you treasure Him above all the good things of this world? Do you treasure Him in the midst of the worst things? that this world throws at you. It's only in Him that we have hope for life and not death. I'll close with these words from Psalm 33, verses 18 through 20. Behold, on those that do Him fear, the Lord doth set His eye, even those who on His mercy do with confidence rely, from death to free their soul, in famine life to them to yield. Our soul doth wait upon the Lord, He is our help and shield. Let's pray.